let me ask you a question. What, what is your favorite psalm? Okay, if, if you were to pick a favorite psalm, what would it be? Well, well, that probably depends on how you actually feel this morning. Because if you're in a good place, then you may choose a psalm like Psalm 145, which we've sang this morning, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. So if you're in a good place this morning and you feel good, then you'll pick a psalm like that. If you're repentant this morning, and there may be some people here and you're racked with guilt, well then Psalm 51 would be a great one. Creating me a new heart, God. If you are in need of comfort this morning, well then, Psalm 23 is a cert, isn't it? God, I need you to be my shepherd. Or if you're disillusioned this morning, disillusioned with your faith, disillusioned with people, disillusioned with God, then Psalms 42 and 43 would be great. And actually next Sunday morning we're going to look at those Psalms. So if you feel that you need to voice off a bit, particularly at God, then come next, uh, next Sunday morning. There are 150 psalms to choose from. And I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever done this, but if you actually read the psalms from start to finish, they will take you on an emotional roller coaster of a journey. And it's why the psalms have been described as the book of mood swings. And it's also why the Psalms are the most popular and widely read portion of the Old Testament. And that's because they are a collection of alternative iTunes, of poetry and prayers which are intended to be set to music. And the reason they're so popular and so widely read is that they connect with us. And that they they connect with us at a very deep level. And the reason for that is rather than them being God's word to us, which is how we tend to see the rest of the Bible. The Psalms actually capture our words, human words to God. And I love that perspective. That actually, as I say, the rest of the Bible we tend to see, this is God's word to us. The Psalms I tend to see as our words to God because they reflect the struggles and the joys of life, the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs, the hopes and the frustrations. And the thing about these psalms was that they provided an alternative structure or an outlet for the Israelites to bring their praises to God, to bring their thanks to God, to bring their hurts to God, to bring their griefs to God. In a very open and a very honest way. One of the things I just love about the psalms is their honesty and their rawness at times. Because they are so raw. Particularly the laments. And there are more of those than any other type of psalm. And yet when it comes to church, we're not good at lament. We don't sing many songs of lament. Even though that's how many of us feel at times. And we come to church and we're encouraged to sing these upbeat songs. And yet that's not where we're at. And there are times whenever we just need to cry out to God. Because that's what a lament is. It's just a cry from the heart to God about how we feel. And we can do that through these alternative iTunes. And so during the summer, what we thought we would do is that we would compile a playlist of 10 psalms to listen to and to reflect on here at Windsor Baptist Church during July and August and into the first week of September. And there are different types of psalms. I say there are laments, but there's also hymns. And we're going to look at some of those, which are expressions of praise to God. And there is a place for that, and they're important. There's also those pilgrimage songs, those songs of ascent, 
And we may look at one of those. There's also cries for vengeance. Difficult psalms that actually wish others harm. And then there's psalms of thanksgiving. But this morning, just incidentally, let's just to get you involved. What is the longest psalm? What's the shortest psalm? 117. Impressive, Bennett. You know you've been to Bible college. Right. The first one we're going to look at is, is a trust psalm. So psalm number 16. So if you have a Bible, there should be a pew Bible if you don't have your own one with you. Uh, but we're going to start with this one. Now, in most translations, although not all, I realize that, you look at the top of this psalm, and it actually says, or it's described as a miktam of David. Now, without looking at your footnotes, who can tell me what a miktam is? Well, that's good, because nobody actually really knows. <laughs> There's been two popular suggestions. One is that some think it means a golden poem whereas others think it means a mystery poem. So what we're about to read together is both precious and mysterious. But in addition, it actually reveals something of David's secret discovery of joy in life. And then this is the odd little twist about this psalm. Also, his hope in death, which is rather strange that this whole thing develops in the psalms at this stage. So let's stand together, as we normally do. And read Psalm 16. I'll read it to us, for us. Love to be able to sing. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my God. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the godly who are in the land, they are the noble people in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Grab a seat. I've already said that one of the key ways to understand the Psalms is to recognize that they are voices of human response to God. And here in in Psalm 16, we encounter a human being, David, responding with gratitude for the joys and the benefits of a life that he enjoys living in connection with his God, a very intimate connection, clearly. David has got a high view of God. He really, really does. He has got a deep appreciation and understanding of God. And that deep appreciation and understanding of his God inspires him, it excites him, it motivates him, and it leaves him with this profound sense of well-being despite, and please hear this, despite the difficulties of his situation and his circumstances. He can see God above and beyond the reality of the darkness that surrounds him at times. David is so taken by his God, he's so overwhelmed with him, that he writes this gem of a poem, just expressing his heart to God. And let me ask you a question just as we start this. How would you go about 
beginning to put words on a page that capture the greatness of God. Do you know one of the things I had thought about doing this morning? I had really thought about just abandoning the rest of this service and actually encouraging everyone to just take the next 15 minutes to write words on a page that expresses your heart concerning the vastness and the bigness and the majesticness, if there is such a word, of God. I may, I may do it, but no, I won't. You see, it could be argued that there is nothing in life that is more important than our concept of God. Nothing in life more important than how you view God. It should be, it must be expansive. And the problem is so often, and speak into my own life, we keep reducing God down. And we box him. And we limit him. And we lose that sense of awe of God. And that impacts our worship. And it impacts our lives. And we need to recapture this massive, grand view of God that someone like David clearly had. And so my hope this morning during our reflection is to do this. I hope to ex- or help us expand our knowledge of God broaden our awareness of him and as a result deepen our faith in him because in this psalm God is referred to as nine different things and that's really just what I want to show this morning it's not so much a sermon in a sense Uh, this is more of a reflection I hope just nine ways to think of God now David begins with this recognition and, and we've heard this this morning Bennett at the beginning of the service raised it we've sang it Peter made reference to it as well, that God is his protector. And have a look at the first phrase which we read in that psalm, keep me safe, my God. And I'm sure you can all identify with that. Because, you know, we do not live in a particularly safe world. You just ask the Romanian families or the Romani families who moved into South Belfast whether they think this is a safe world. Just ask the countless displaced refugees in Sudan if the world is a safe place. Ask the Afghan people. Ask the families of those soldiers who have gone to Afghanistan if this is a safe world in which we live. Ask the families of the 28,000 kids who will die today because of poverty or poverty-related illness. Ask those families if this is a safe world. Or ask the family of 82-year-old Anne Driscoll who on Monday night went out to do some shopping and was stabbed nine times in the neck. Ask that family, is this a safe world? And therefore, whenever you read those words that the psalmist cries out, you can echo those because you say, yes, God, please keep me safe, keep my family safe. Peter's heart cried this morning. He loves his family and he wants them to be kept safe. And we all would love to say that, wouldn't we? Keep me safe, keep my kids safe. Keep my family safe, God. And David was quite possibly writing this psalm from a very insecure and unsafe place because we know that for part of his life, David was forced to go on the run from Saul, hiding for his very life. And Saul wanted David dead. And therefore, this is a completely natural cry of David's God. Please look after me. And I don't know where you're at this morning and whether you need to echo that cry and just say, God, please look after me. Look after those who are close to me. And David had turned to his God for protection, but then he goes on to say, 
for I have come to you for refuge. And again, Peter referred to this. Do you know, the Psalms are peppered with this idea that God is our refuge. Let me just give you some examples that are on the screen. God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble from Psalm 46. Trust in him at all times, for God is our refuge. God is my refuge and my fortress. But what does that mean? Again, do you know, we read words, we come across them in the Bible, we say them, God is my refuge. What does it actually mean to you that God is your refuge? What does it actually mean to you? What does that look like in your life? Or maybe an alternative question is, where actually do we run to find security and protection? Now this is the question I keep asking myself, because the thing is that sometimes God's the last place I go. I turn in all sorts of other directions, and when I've exhausted all my directions, then I'll go, right, I probably need to turn to God now. Sometimes we have so many alternative outlets for seeking refuge when actually God needs to be the primary place. Friends, other people are important. And David certainly surrounded himself with others. In fact, very seldom was David ever on his own. But David always knew that his ultimate security was in God. His ultimate place of refuge and protection was God. We do need each other. We do need church family. But our need of God is far greater. And in the midst of an unsafe and an uncertain world, and in the midst of very real difficulties that many of you I know are facing at the moment, can I encourage you to just turn to and retreat to your God, where you will find refuge and you will find protection. So David begins by saying, God, you're my protector, you're my refuge. And then he moves on to restate his submission to God. Look at verse 2. You are my Lord, or if you've got the New Living Translation, it actually says, you are my master. You see, David affirmed God's place in his life. For David, God was number one. There were no other rivals. God was in control of David's life. David was in a place where he said, God, I submit to you. You're my Lord. You are my master. David had reached that place of humble surrender. And I know it's a place we must all occupy, and yet it's a place I struggle to get to. Where I'm actually totally surrendered to God. Where I actually give control of my life, every aspect of my life, over to Almighty God. I hang on to so much. I am so self-centered at times, it's frightening. Rather than being God-centered. And that's what it means to have the Lord as your master. Where you, he is at the very center of all of your life. The center of your family life. The center of your social life. The center of all aspects of your life. And yet how often do we displace God and we creep back up into that place? Either we naturally turn to God for safety and refuge because he is our Lord. Or as I say, we only turn to God when we've exhausted every other option. So protector, refuge, master. And in the second half of verse 2, God is acknowledged as his provider. He says, apart from you, apart from you, God, I have no good thing. And this is, a, this is a sentiment that James, for example, picks up in the New Testament. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down, as it goes on to say, from the Father of the heavenly lights. Because although we live in an unsafe, uncertain world, we have so much to be thankful for. So much to be thankful for. And the Bible promotes gratitude. And I realize that for some people here this morning, it's difficult to be grateful given your present circumstances. 
And it's not that you don't want to be thankful, but actually the things that you're facing at the minute overshadow the desire to actually turn around to God and say, God, thank you for life. But God is good. And God is the source of every good thing in our lives. And there will be things in our lives that are not good. But that is the reality of living in a fallen, broken, imperfect world. And we just need to deal with that. And one day, yes, God will create and one day God will renew a world that will only be crammed with good. But until then, the challenge that every single one of us faces is to recognize the goodness of God in each of our lives despite the mess at times. Now let me digress for a wee moment because look at verse 3. Because David in verse 3 recognizes the encouragement he receives from other Christians or other people of faith. Let me ask you another question. Who are your heroes of the Christian faith? Who are your heroes of the Christian faith? Verse 3 in the New Living Translation says this. The godly people in the land are my true heroes. I take pleasure in them. Or as the NIV says, as for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. Do you delight in one another? Like as you look around, are the people around you your true heroes? We, uh, we live in a culture that promotes the cult of celebrity. A society that appears to be obsessed or certainly fascinated with celebrity status. One commentator has noted that celebrity is the creation of the information age. In the past, our role models used to be heroes, didn't they? People distinguished for exceptional courage and nobility and strength. But more and more, the cult of celebrity is replacing the myth of hero. You see, David didn't face that dilemma. There was no heat, no hello, no okay, no reality TV. He was clear on who his heroes were. They were the godly people in the land. And probably more than ever, we need godly heroes in this land today. People that we can look to and say, you know, that is who I want to be like. Their strength, their courage, the fact they stand up for God, the fact that they model Jesus. They are the godly people in this land and that's who I want to be like. It's not about this person or that person. That's who I want to emulate. And the second thing to note from that verse is how David took delight. He took pleasure in people. Now this is hard sometimes. Because people let us down. People disappoint us. Even in a church. And therefore it's really hard sometimes as you look around to say I'm going to take delight in you. I'm actually going to take pleasure in you. And so what often happens is that we, we find that we take pleasure in things quicker than we take pleasure in people found this comment as I was preparing for this when actress Sophia Loren sobbed to her Italian movie director over the theft of her jewellery he lectured her saying listen to me Sophia I am much older than you and if there's one great truth I have learned about life it is this never cry over anything that can't cry over you and that's brilliant because you see people are far more important to us than things God mattered to David. People mattered to David. And therefore, let me encourage us to be a church. This is hard, I know this. Let me encourage us to be a church that values each other above material possessions. And David then injects a little reality check into the psalm. 
by reminding us that if we substitute God with other gods, we'll only end up with heavy and unfulfilled hearts. Chasing after, which is the Hebrew for means that it's going and serving other gods. Because what David says is, listen, if you chase after other gods, it will never lead to the joy that I want to talk about in this psalm. So God is the psalmist protector. He's his refuge, his master, his provider. And then after this little digression to express his appreciation of godly people and warn about the futility of other gods, in verses 5 and 6, David confirms that God is also his inheritance. His inheritance. And here again, the language is very much concerned with expressing gratitude for what God has provided for him. His portion and his cup, which may refer to his daily provisions. He says that the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. And there are possibly, there are, I know a number of ways to interpret this. But the one thing is clear, and this is again really hard, is that the psalmist is content with his lot. The psalmist is content with his portion in life. And that is a very real challenge for some of us. To accept our lot in life. Not to be jealous of others whose portion and lot appears to be far better than ours. It's so difficult to look around today and be content. And David appears to have found this secret. And maybe it's the realization, and this is the important bit, it's the realization that God has assigned it. Because the psalmist writes, you have assigned my portion and my cup and made my lot secure. And we've got to reach that place of somehow learning to be satisfied with what God has given us. And not always yearning for more or for better or for different. Even though it's completely natural to do that. And as Paul sat in a Roman prison cell, he was somehow able, and I don't get this, he was somehow able to say this, I have learned to be content. Now notice he's learned to be. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And again, I don't know your circumstances. I know some of your circumstances. I don't know all your circumstances. Can you say that this morning? That you've learned to be content. It's different from happy now. Have you learned to be content whatever your circumstances? I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether I'm well fed, whether I'm hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want. Contentment is becoming one of those elusive realities in 21st century society. And David could say, thanks to God for what he had. But here's the deeper truth. David's joy was not primarily in God's gifts to him. David's joy was in his God. David loved God. The joys and the benefits of life lived in companionship with God was what inspired David. That's what satisfied him to a very deep and a profound level. No matter what was going on around him, David was able to say, do you know something? I am content in my God. And that's who I turn to for protection and refuge. He's my master. That's where I go for happiness, true happiness. And in verse 7, we then discover that God is my counselor. In other words, God reveals the way that leads to life. But how does God actually counsel us? How does God counsel you? How does God counsel you? Well, one of the key ways, and we know that, is through his word. I mean, Psalm 119 will say, 
It's your word, God. It's a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. And it talks about hiding God's word in our hearts. That as we absorb God's word, as we meditate upon God's word, then God communicates to us. We believe that passionately in this church, that God's word communicates to us. That's how God counsels us. That's how God directs us. That's how God guides us and refocuses us. And verse 7 is an interesting verse because it says that even, second half of it, even at night my heart instructs me. Do you know, often when our heads hit the pillow, they're often buzzing, aren't they? Buzzing with what the, the events of the day. What we've done, what we've said, what we've watched, what we've been to, where we're going to, all of that, just buzz, 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 buzz. And I think it's one of the reasons why it is a really great discipline that one of the last things you do before your head hits the pillow is just to read God's word. Because as God's word is led and is absorbed, is read and absorbed, then it says that even at night, our heart, which God's word gets absorbed into, instructs us. I don't know how that happens. No clue. But just the very fact that God's word is there. It's hidden in our hearts so that we won't sin against him, yeah, but just so that we refine refreshment. Protector, refuge, master, provider, inheritance, counselor. We're nearly there. Verses 8 and 9, my focus. See, David was able to declare, I'll not be shaken. I'll not be shaken. I, I don't know if you ever get shaken in your faith. You ever been shaken in your faith? It, it, it happens a lot for different reasons. One of the reasons, and I, I shared this with someone during the week, one of the reasons that, that I get shaken in my faith sometimes is that I get disillusioned with other people. I really do. People, people who disappoint me and who I expect more from. And what that leads to is it leads to me then becoming disillusioned with my faith and the transformational nature of my faith because I think to myself, hang on a minute, if this gospel that I passionately believe in is meant to transform lives, then how come so many people just keep disappointing me who claim to have embraced this transforming gospel? And that's one of the things that shakes me. For you it may be for different reasons why you get shaken in your faith. I get distracted, I get preoccupied with other things. But look at the psalmist's secret in verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. David, stop setting people before you. Stop setting other things before you. Get your focus on your God. Get your focus on your God. David's focus is consistently fixed on God. And I need to learn that. And I know we all do. And I don't need to ignore the reality of the tough things of life and the people and all of that. But I must always set God before me so that I see everything else high in the light of him and not see God in the light of other people but to actually see people in the light of God and I know that's easier said than the result, look at verse 9 the result of all of this is a heart that's filled with a joy and a voice that's bursting with praise Joy is such an important biblical concept, isn't it? It's mentioned something like 650 times in the Bible. And as we've said already, joy and contentment is something far deeper than happiness. I mean, the pursuit of happiness is a film starring Will Smith. But it's also the longing of most human hearts. I long to pursue happiness, but what exactly is happiness? The happiness that I often want is just a temporary passing thing. Whereas joy and contentment is a deep, long-term, ever lasting experience 
And as a result of David's focus of having set the Lord always before him, what he discovers is he has a heart that's just packed with joy. And when it is packed with joy, all he wants to do is voice his, uh, raise his voice in praise of his God. And then we uncover an interesting development in the Psalms, Psalmist thinking. And we're, we're nearly finished. He says, my body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One or your faithful one see decay. And, and here people would say that we begin to discover a belief in the afterlife that started to appear in the Psalter. And David knew that he was going to die, we all do, but he believed that he wouldn't suffer eternal alienation, that he wouldn't, along with us, see decay. In other words, that's a metaphor for isolation and abandonment from God's presence. David knew that he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the psalmist clearly believed that there was life before death, but there's also life after death. And therefore, his God was his hope. Now, those of you who know your Bibles, you'll also know that Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm. Because it's quoted in the New Testament. In Acts 2, Peter quotes it. In Acts 13, Paul quotes it. And he quotes it as they both talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, as a result of the resurrection of Jesus, we now have a sure and a confident hope that we will not be abandoned to the grave. That we will not see decay in the sense of alienation forever from our God. That is our hope. And hope is such an important and massive issue in the Christian faith. And then the ninth thing that David says, God, you are my life. Or maybe more accurately, you are my path and my way of life. And so what you discover here is a guy who has got such clarity about the reality of his God. And so my final question for you this morning, really where I was started off is this. What, what is your view of God? Is this it? Is this your view of God or, or have you started to lose perspective a little for whatever reason? Let me make a really practical suggestion. Let me encourage you over the next nine days to take a phrase, a description of God every day and just reflect on it and meditate on it. What it actually means to you and for you that God is those nine things.